Morning, everybody. Um, let me just introduce myself. I'm conscious that uh, I've not been around for a few weeks. I've been away, so there's quite a few faces I don't recognize, uh, and you probably look at me wondering who I am as well. So, uh, My name's Sam Lomas. I'm uh, a student at the moment. I'm studying at Bible College at Cliff College, just up the road. Uh, yeah, I'm doing a theology degree. Uh, yeah, I'm here to preach this morning because, uh, yeah, that's what Dan asked me to do. Anyway, I wasn't planning on saying that, sorry. Basically, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're still in Matthew. I think this is the last week of Matthew, and then we're into the Heroic Faith series. Um, and what we have this morning is the last lot of teaching on Jesus' parables. So if you remember, uh, the, the weeks gone by, we've been looking at uh, the parables that Jesus has been teaching, and there's seven of them in total in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, we come to the, the last today we're going to cover covering the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl and then the parable of the net that's what we're doing this morning and so before we get into that let me just say if you uh, have a bible with you then great uh, if not there are bibles at the front don't feel awkward about going and grabbing one that's totally fine and uh, the passage we're looking at is Matthew 13 uh, verses 44 to 52 and uh, I'll give you a minute to open that up. And uh, the way it's going to work this morning, I thought we could just, I'll read it out and then we'll just make our way through it and see what, uh, see what God wants to say. I've, uh, I've prepped quite a bit of stuff to say and uh, I think God's put some stuff on my heart for me to share and uh, hopefully at the end of it we'll all be uh, excited, we'll have learned some more stuff and uh, we can praise God. Okay, cool. So I'll, uh, I'll read it out and then we'll crack on. So starting at verse 44, it says, uh, and this is Jesus teaching, uh, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his, in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw, away the, bad, uh, threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So let's begin uh, by taking a look at uh, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. And uh, the reason we want to keep, kind of clunk these two together to begin with is because they appear like they convey the same lesson. They do, of course, vary. And uh, that is in one striking way. The treasure was found by someone who doesn't seem to be looking for it. It's as if he came across it by accident. Whereas the pearl, the merchant searching for the pearl, by the sounds of it, he'd been searching long and hard for, for, to find the pearl. And uh, that had been quite a journey for him. He'd, been, he'd found different items that would cause caught his eye and then eventually stumbled across the pearl. But what these two 
parables have in common and the lesson that they seem to teach us is that once they find either the treasure or the pearl, they give up everything they have, everything in order to gain the treasure or the pearl. And that seems to be the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. And of course, the treasure in this parable and the pearl both represent the kingdom of God or salvation or Jesus, whichever you want to make it, make it so. It's, it, the pearl and the treasure is our salvation. And so Jesus uses this imagery as an illustration of what it means to come into his kingdom, to find salvation, to become a follower of him. And the, two, and the thing they have in common is that when they find Jesus, when they find salvation, they give everything they have and they, and they chase after that, that item that they found. And taking a closer look at the parable of the treasure, like I said, he doesn't, it, it doesn't specifically say what the man's profession was, but it, it seems to suggest that he was working in this field. It seems to suggest he might not have been a very wealthy man. And uh, what happens is he, he almost effectively stumbles across this treasure and uh, what struck me when I first read this passage was a simple word right in the center of this, uh, this verse, I think it's verse 44, where it says, uh, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had in order to purchase the field. And the two things I want to say about this parable, the parable of the treasure. The first uh, is just that, in, in his joy, he went and, and sold everything he had in order to buy the field. And I just wonder sometimes whether whether we do that, whether we find our salvation, we find uh, the kingdom of God, uh, and uh, do we sometimes not actually have that joy in going and selling everything I have or giving up everything, or do we do that thing where, oh, yeah, okay, we'll go for it, but uh, I'm going to keep hold of this, or I'm going to keep this bit of my life just the same, just actually I'm going to keep that bit. Or is it the joy that we find salvation, that we find this amazing gift, this beautiful thing, do we in that joy sell everything we have in order to pursue the kingdom of God? I just wonder about that this morning. And the second thing in this parable of the treasure I want to just pick pick apart is, uh, it does sound a little bit ethically dubious, he finds some treasure in someone else's field. He hides the treasure and then goes off, gets enough money together, buys a field, and then gets the treasure back. But uh, So, uh, yeah, it does sound a bit ethically dubious, but uh, I can reassure you that the Jewish custom and the law at the time meant that if you were to find something, say some money on the floor, then basically, putting it bluntly, it was kind of like finders keepers. So it's not as ethically dubious as it sounds. He basically, it's his if he finds it. Um, and, and let's try not to get bogged down in that because I don't think that's like the main point of the parable. <laughs> uh, but the point is, and what I want to just hold up just for a moment is actually, you know what, he found this treasure by accident. He found it by accident, which is interesting because when you come on to the next parable, the parable of the pearl, actually it's such a contrast because... He didn't find it by accident. And it was a long, hard slog for him to find the pearl. 
you know, he, it was his profession, so he's a merchant, so it was his profession to search and examine items of great wealth and uh, stuff that will have been attractional and looked good. And it, it, it wasn't like he just he saw it and it was there. It was a case of him searching long and hard in order to find the pearl. And yes, like I said, when he finds it, he gives everything up. But I, what I took from this passage and what I, I think I want to share with you is that you know, there's lots of things in our world that catch our eye, be it earthly possessions or religions or kind of morals of life. They seem to catch our eye and we can, we can get distracted by them or we can pursue them. And actually that can be really unhelpful because actually what would have happened for this merchant is he would have seen loads of things. And quite frankly, he probably owned a few pearls. He probably owned, like, I don't know what the equivalent would be. Like, he probably owned a few sports cars. He was probably a very wealthy man. And so for him to be searching and looking and still never being satisfied by his possessions, by this, uh, the morals that the world would have thrown at him, he eventually finds the pearl, which is our faith, our, is Christianity, our salvation. Our, he finds Jesus and realizes this is it. This is it. Everything that he has means nothing now. He goes and sells everything in order to pursue and get hold of the pearl, in order to get hold of Jesus. He sells everything he has. And it's just this amazing imagery of someone who has had the world almost presented to him and not been satisfied, and yet finds the pearl. He finds Jesus, and finally he has the thing that can satisfy him. And so he gives everything he has up and chases after the pearl and he purchases the pearl. It's quite powerful, really, when you uh, break it down like that, I think. And so at this stage, I just wanted to ask a question to you guys, if that's okay, uh, simply because I think it's an interesting question to ask. We have these two illustrations of finding salvation, of finding Jesus. One where somebody did it by accident, in, with the treasure, and the other where someone searched for a long time. And I wonder, like, which can you relate to most in your own journey? Which one can you relate to? Can you relate more to finding your faith by accident? Or was it, for, in your case, did you search for a long time? I mean, were you a part of another religion? Were you, uh, did you pursue a different hobby for a long time? Or, or, or I mean, what's your story? And I'm not asking you to answer. I just want you to think about it. Because it's an interesting question to ask. I mean, for me, my answer is that, you know, I grew up in a, a Christian home with my parents and my two sisters, and we went to church. And, uh, you know, when that happens, I don't think you realize how much of a blessing it is. I don't think you realize that I certainly didn't. And actually, I didn't become uh, a committed follower of Jesus until I was 17. And actually, part of me thinks, you know, I think I can relate more to the parable of the hidden treasure. Because although the treasure was always there and surrounded me, I, I sometimes think, you know what, I, what are the chances? I, I kind of, I mean, probability is probably quite high because I was surrounded by it. But at the same time, it, it felt like I just slipped and fell into salvation by accident. I didn't search for a long time. I was so fortunate that he was surrounded by me. And so just as a side note, if you have kids and you grow and they're growing up in your home and you you follow Jesus, I, I encourage you this morning to talk to them about it. You know, model it, model your faith to them, live your faith, but talk to them about it as well. 
Because it's such a blessing, and there's so many people out there who would probably be able to relate to the merchant searching for the pearl more, who actually they have to they have to work really hard to find it. So I just encourage you, if you're a parent here, to actually you know model it, live it, but talk about it to your kids as well. And the second question I wanted to ask you two questions. The first was the uh, which can you relate to most, and the second was you know the two responses in these parables are the same. They both give everything up. And it sounds like an obvious question to ask, but is there something in your life that you need to give up in order to pursue Jesus even more than you already are? Is there something that's blocking your, your faith? Like, is there something, uh, I mean, it'll be different for all of us, but is there something that actually, you know what, that's not helpful? Or you know what, that's hindering my walk with Jesus. That's not, that's not beneficial to me. That's, that's distracting me from the pearl. That's distracting me from the treasure. Is there something in your life that you need to actually know what? I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to drop that in order, in order to gain more and more of Jesus. So let's move on and we come to the parable of the net. And I'll just read it out to you just to remind us uh, from verse 47 in your Bibles. It says this. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fishing baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that short parable, it relates very closely to the parable of the weeds, which Carl preached about last week. And so for that reason, I'm not going to go into great detail. I encourage you immensely to listen to Carl's sermon online. I was reflecting on it this morning. I think Carl shared some real wisdom in, in kind of expanding on that, that parable of the weeds. You know, so often as church, we have got it wrong in the past. So I'd encourage you just to check that, that sermon out. What I will say, however is once again, Jesus emphasizes in this parable that it will be God who does the sorting out at the end of the time, at the end of the ages, at the end of the world. It will be God who, who sorts out the bad from the good, which is a bit what Carl was saying last week. I encourage you to check that out. It's really worthwhile. <laughs> and we move on and come to the, the end of this kind of section that we're looking at this morning. And... Uh, I'm really excited to share about this a little bit because it got me quite excited when I saw it because what we have is possibly the scariest question I think you could ever be asked. We have Jesus saying from in verse 50, 51, have you understood all these things? Have you understood all these things? And I remember being at school and the teacher would say to you, oh, do you understand? And you would look at her like, or him, and you'd be like, Mm, I'm not sure. Or at college, we'd have it sometimes when they would be, someone would present some theory by some theologian from 1,300 years ago, and the lecturer would explain the theory, and they'd look at you like, do you understand? And you're like, no, definitely not. But, but, and so for Jesus, the, the saviour of the world, to ask this question, I just find it hilarious. He says to them, do you understand these things? And actually, I think this is a real lesson for the teachers in our churches, for Dan, for Carl, for, I guess me, but for everybody who's teaching, you know what? What's the point in teaching if people don't understand? 
And I think Jesus is just modeling it here by saying, you know, do you understand? He's just taught seven parables. Do you understand? And, you know, the disciples or the, the people he's talking to, I don't think they're disciples, but he's talking to them. And if they had said no, I mean, I think Jesus would have gone, all right, well, let's explain it again. Let's, let's, let's work through this. And so I think as a, like a side thing, Dan, Carl, you know, if, if we don't understand what you're on about, can you explain it again, please? <laughs> but... Yeah, <laughs> but you know what? What's the point? In, what's the point in Jesus' teaching if we don't understand it? You know, and so if you ever get that bit where you read the Bible and you're like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. You know what? People, un- there are people who do understand. So you know, let's let's work around it. Ask Dan. Ask Carl. Ask uh, online. Maybe not online. Ask. Look in some books. You'll find you'll find answers. And and the people respond to Jesus. They say yes. And he says to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And so going back to the question Jesus asked, have you understood all these things? Why is that relevant for us? So not just teachers, why is that relevant for us? Well, you know what? I think Jesus is challenging us in that question. I think Jesus is provoking us, actually. Have you discovered the treasure? Have you discovered the pearl? And do you understand his teaching? And if so, then what are you going to do about it? Or what's the outworking of that? Have you given up everything to follow him? Do you understand what he's teaching? And if so, are you going to give everything up in order to gain him? I think Jesus is challenging us to make our faith public, make our faith known to others. He says, a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. I think these closing comments of Jesus' teaching on the parables is a call from him to evangelize, a call from him to put into practice all of his teachings that are embedded within the parables, and they are complex. We could go back over the the parables and we could have seven more sermons on each parable that would expand in whole new ways. Jesus says, do you understand how complex these are, but do you just, can you grasp them, and can you begin to show the outworkings of this? I think... In this question, in this little engage with Jesus, he's encouraging us to show the outworking of our understanding. And quite frankly, I think that makes perfect sense. You know, when we begin to grasp the treasure that is our salvation, when we begin to grasp the pearl and the beautiful thing that a life with Jesus is, I think it makes perfect sense that we would show that to the world, that we would show that to other people. I really do. Surely we would want our friends to see it. Surely we would want them to find it as well. Surely they would want to know the joy of the salvation. Surely they would. I was in... uh, Israel, uh, a couple of weeks ago for uh, with college, we were doing a little tour out there. We were seeing some of the holy sites and whatnot. And uh, while I was there, I got chatting to a, 
one of the other members on the trip and she was telling me some really interesting things uh, that she she'd learned this year that she'd come into contact with and uh, she started to tell me about these two historic prophecies and just go with me on this if that's what I just said sounds like it might be about to freak you out but it was fascinating to hear her talk about these prophecies and uh, I, I want to share them with you this morning because I think God wants us to hear them and because I actually think they're really relevant to this whole theme of uh, finding our salvation and beginning to show it to other people. And this, these prophecies that she shared with me and, and she actually sent me them two, uh, the two prophecies written out uh, over email and I printed them off and I have them with me. And so I want to share them with you because they're so powerful. And the first one is from a guy called Smith Wigglesworth. Some of you may have heard of him. If not, don't worry. And uh, the second is from a lady called Jean Darnell, who you may have heard of, may not. Again, don't worry. And uh, I'll just read these out to you, and then we'll just see how we feel afterwards. But they speak of revival within the UK. They speak of a mass awakening within the UK that actually... I read and my heart was pounding afterwards. It really was. And so I'm going to read them to you this morning. And I really hope we can begin to explore just exactly what God wants to do in this country. And uh, they are quite long. If I mess up while I'm reading, I apologize. I'm not a great reader. It's something I think God is trying to work on in me. But, uh, <laughs> so if I mess up, I apologize. But the first one, Smith Wigglesworth, he was an evangelist, for those of you who don't know, and he was instrumental in establishing like the Pentecostal movement. And he was around about 100 years ago, and he saw revival in his lifetime. And what revival is, if you don't know, is basically just like where loads of people come to faith almost like that. Loads of people hear the message of Jesus and they come to faith like that. And he saw that, that breaking out across the UK about 100 years ago. Uh, loads of people being healed, loads of people being saved. And it's just an amazing, he was an amazing evangelist. But what happened was shortly before he passed away, about, they reckon about a week before he died in 1947, he said this. During the next few decades, there will be two distinctive moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by the restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is a great revival, but the Lord says no. Neither is this great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidence in the churches of something that has not been seen before. A coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest move of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world have ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores. Even the Wesleyan and Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's spirit will flow over from United, the United Kingdom to mainland Europe. And from there will begin a missionary move to, to the ends of the earth. And I read that and I was blown away. And I shared it with Dan on Monday. And Dan said, can I share this on Wednesday at the prayer meeting? And if you were here, you would have heard that or a snippet of that. And what's, what's interesting is that when Dan and Carl and a few others came together to start the church, 
The thing they wanted to emphasize was a ministry in word and spirit. And Dan shared a little bit about that on Wednesday. And here it is being prophesied in 1947 that there will be a movement of the word and spirit across the UK and there will be great revival breaking out. Jean Darnell then prophesizes in 1967. Uh, she was an American evangelist and uh, she was on a trip to uh, Hong Kong but stopped off in England. And while she was here, she had the last of three recurring visions. The third time uh, she had the vision, she was staying uh, in Dorset. And uh, it came in, like I said, 1967 at the start of uh, the time of the early charismatic renewals within the UK. And in response to these recurring visions that she had, uh, she actually ended up staying in Britain for over two decades with her husband to help what she calls nurture the fires of God. Um, but I want to read to you these visions. Okay, She says, The British Isles were covered in mist, a green haze, and Jean Darnell saw lots of pinpoints of light piercing through. As she looked, they turned out to be fires breaking out all over the nation, from Scotland in the north to Land's End in the south. As these God-lit fires were joined together, they burned brighter. As she continued to pray, she saw lightning and explosions of fire and then visions of fire flowing from the north to south, from Scotland, Ireland and Wales into England. And some of the streams of fire crossed the channel into Europe, whilst others stopped. These fires were pockets of people who had been made intensely hungry for the word of God and for New Testament Christianity. Those who read the book of Acts and wondered, where is this church? These people would come together to pray and extra meetings would have to be laid on to accommodate all the people. Groups would be formed, prayer groups, Bible study groups. Some would meet in churches, others would be in homes, some converted, some unconverted, who were searching and seeking. In the two moves of God, Jean Darnell asked the Lord about the vision and had a, the distinct impression that there would be two moves of God. The first would be the renewal of Christian faith by fullness of Holy Spirit within the church. And the second, this renewal of life in the church would spread outside, resulting in a public awakening. The second part of the vision was the lightning striking around the nation. This move of God would be a national spiritual awakening, which would move into every level of the nation's life, on the campuses, universities, colleges, schools, into the media and in the government. There would be so many conversions that it would actually change the character of the nation of Britain and determine the future move of God in Europe. Jean continued that there would not be a part of the nation's life that would not feel the impact of spiritual awakening when God releases it to this country. <laughs> and I read that and I was like, man! Man, I want that to happen. Like, don't you just want that to happen in our towns, our communities? Like, everything just seems so messed up at the moment. You see the news and your just heart breaks. Everything doesn't seem to fit into place. Everything just is just agony. I mean, I was in Israel two weeks ago. The place that's currently in lockdown is where we were staying. Like, and then you look on the news in Europe and there's riots and and protests happening, and then further afield, you, you just got mess everywhere. 
And you just long for something like this to happen. Long for something like these two prophecies to happen. And why did I share them? Not because they're cool stories. I believe this is going to happen. I want this to happen. I find it so exciting. (laughs) And I honestly, I honestly believe that these two prophecies are true messages from God. And that might freak you out because it would have freaked me out a few years ago. So just go with it. But I long for something like that to happen. And actually, you know what? The reason that I shared these two, or the reason that they were being shared with me originally, was because 2017 is being suggested as a significant year for these two prophecies. Why? Because 2017 is 70 years since Smith Smith Wigglesworth prophesied, and it's 50 years since uh, Jean Darnell's prophecy. And why is that significant? Well, the suggestion is that after 70 years, it was after 70 years that Daniel was awakened to then pray for the salvation of Israel, who were currently captives. And it was after 50 years that you would have the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was basically when the, the slaves and prisoners that you had would be set free and debts would, debts would be forgiven and the mercies of God would be particularly evident. God's mercy would overflow in the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. So that's why they came apparent to why they were being shared. And I don't want to get lost in that because whether that's true or not, who are we to decide when a prophecy is going to happen? But man, we can chase after it, can't we? We can long for it. We can pray a revival in. I don't see why we can't. You know, you look at our country, like I said, our town, our communities, are in desperate need for an outpouring of God's spirit. And I, I'm sure of it, and I'm sure Dan and Cole will agree with me, that God is willing. He's up for it. He really is. I just think we're just in this state of apathy at the moment. And I think he's just starting to nudge us, especially here, especially Redeemer King. I feel like God is nudging us and poking us and saying, come on, let's do this. Let's do this in Chesterfield. Why do you think we've just started this CAP project? Well, because God is poking us and saying, look, there's a need. And you guys, you can do it. You can serve that need. So we start this CAP project. And what happens? We start to, like, we start to help people and people's start to, lives start to come back together. But actually, you know what? They notice that we're living authentically for God. And they notice that we're being like, countercultural. Or actually, you know what? Just notice that we're loving one another. And then salvation comes. They find that treasure that we've found. And there's joy in salvation. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 51. It says, restore to me the joy of salvation. I'd love to pray that every day. What a prayer to pray every day. Restore to me the joy of salvation. I think that would change your outlook on life every day. Imagine that every morning you woke up, Lord, restore to me the joy of salvation. That first time. That first time you realized, man, that would be a cool prayer to pray. Maybe we should do it. Uh, but you know what? I, like I said, I see the work that we're doing at RK, and I see the work that Carl's involved in the message around, around the UK. And I, I'm within certain conversations in Bible colleges around the UK. And I'm serious. I do think that God is desperate to do something in this country. He really is. 
And I think he's just starting to do something. And I think Redeemer King could be instrumental to that. I really do. So let me encourage you to really throw yourselves into any kind of project that gets going, just like the CAP project. And I want to close with these words from a chap called Malcolm Duncan. And some of you might know him, but he, he heads up Spring Harvest. And he came across these two prophecies, much like I did. And he said something quite interesting. And I just want to share it because I think I agree with him. He says this, I think 2017 is a significant year. And I believe we are going to see a move of God in the United Kingdom in 2017. And I believe God is asking us to get ready. He is asking us to raise our faith and expectation, to raise our commitment to prayer, to raise our eyes of what we are seeing around us, to take our eyes off the feeling and the falling and the decaying and to lift our eyes to him. I don't think it's going to be a signs and wonders movement. I don't think it's going to be all bells and all whistles. I think this is going to be the birthing of people living authentic lives in God. Lives that will be attractional to others. I so want to do that. I so want to have an authentic life that people are attracted by. One of the first things we say to students at college when they come is say, they say, uh, they say how, do we, how do you live at college? What's the best way to live in community? Because you spend every day, every hour with one another. What's the best thing to do in order to not provoke and annoy people? You know what? To be authentic. To be yourself. So when you're hurting, you're hurting to other people. You know, when you're in pain of something, you know, people know about it but not in a negative way, in a, you know what, we can put your arm around you, we can help you. Or when you've got a, a joyous story, you share it, and they go, yeah, that's fantastic. I think authenticity is key to everything we do as Christians. I really do. I think, going back to what Malcolm said in this, these few sentences, you know, in other words, what he's saying, I think lives that have found the treasure that is salvation, and you know, in response to finding that treasure, and Jesus saying, do you understand my teaching? And we say yes, and we begin to display Jesus' teaching, Jesus' life to other people. We begin to show who he is by being more like him. I think that's when God starts to respond with more of his spirit, more of his goodness, more of his mercy, more of his breakthrough starts to happen when we begin to live authentically for Jesus and begin to show Jesus to others. That's when God's mercy starts to fall on everything that we see and everything that we do.